I want to greet each one in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So I wasn't sure why God was leading me to have this message this morning exactly, but then we had a very interesting discussion in our Sunday school class this morning. And I feel like there must be a reason, and hopefully I can make myself clear this morning and as we look at some things. I have some questions this morning. I'm going to give, I think there's four of them right off, things for us to think about. What does it mean to be an Anabaptist? I don't know what first comes to your mind, what pops in your head, what it means to be an Anabaptist. If you say, well, I'm an Anabaptist because I'm a Mennonite, what does that mean? Does that mean anything? Or is it just a culture? Is it just a tradition? I hope not. What does it mean to be an Anabaptist besides just, well, saying I'm a Mennonite? Are there purposes? Are there extra definitions that come with that and that it is true? How do I know if I'm an Anabaptist? Anybody want to say? I'm kind of putting you on the spot. Does it matter in the end? Are only Anabaptists going to heaven? That's an easy one, right? Do I have to pick on someone? Like a teacher in school? Hopefully not. Micah, are only Anabaptists going to heaven? I hope not, right? I don't want heaven to be that that small. So if not only Anabaptists are going to heaven, then why am I an Anabaptist? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Why would I choose to take on that identity? Does being an Anabaptist save me from my sins? Someone want to answer that? No. So these are some of the things I want to look at this morning. Why am I asking these questions? Why do I want to spend a whole message on this topic? And the reason is, is there's a reason that we here at Salem have for over a hundred years called ourselves Anabaptists and believed in things that churches down the road don't. And I want to look at why that matters. As long as I'm a Christian, isn't that good enough? My last message was being on transformation, being transformed by the Holy Spirit, by the power of Jesus in our lives. And And I believe that is very important. That comes first. But once 
the power of God is in my life and transforming me, is that good enough? The church, many so-called churches today um, would say that's, that's all you got to do. You got to be saved and then Jesus transforms you and that's all that matters. And it's true that, that we want that first and foremost. That should be our primary focus. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, saves us from our sins. He takes us from darkness to light. Acts 26, 18, for the lack of time, I'm just going to read it. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. These are the words of Paul when preaching, witnessing to King Agrippa. That was what was, uh, sorry, prophesied in Isaiah that Jesus would come to do. Turn us from darkness to light. And the focus was on the Gentiles being turned from darkness to light, but even Jewish people that had walked away from God, had turned from him, needed that transformation and turning. Saul, or Paul, could not save one Gentile with his own power. Neither can we. We can't save people just by turning them into Anabaptists. Next question or thought you may have is, so if Anabaptist belief can't turn man from darkness to light, why teach these things? Why believe these things? Aren't they just man-made rules? Doesn't Anabaptism just lead to legalism? And I believe it can if we separate that from the power of the Holy Spirit and from the transformation that needs to happen on the inside. There are many people today that call themselves Anabaptists or Mennonites that don't look anything different from the world. They don't really believe any differently from the world. It's only a name anymore. So where did the Anabaptists start? Where did we get our beginning? I think most people know this information, but we started in the 16th century, early 1500s. I, in my studying, I looked at timelines. If you Google, for me, I use DuckDuckGo because Google doesn't give me all the information that I want nowadays, and I don't know how long DuckDuckGo will. But it was fascinating going to DuckDuckGo and typing in church timeline. I forget the exact phrase I used. And looking at the, all the images it would bring up, and it would bring up timelines that the Catholic Church puts out, the timelines the Greek Orthodox put out. And whichever church group you're from, often, they'll just show the straight line right back to the early church, the apostles, indicating that they're the one true church. And if you look at the Catholic timelines, they show this nice straight line, and then boop, in the 1500s, off come a lot of the churches that 
supposedly split off of the Catholic Church during the Reformation. I don't know if this is a good illustration or a good graphic for us as Anabaptists. Are we just a diversion from the Catholic Church? That almost indicates that the Catholic Church was the true church until we broke off of them, right? And so I think we need to be careful how we think about that. Does it mean that there were no true Christians from the time of the early church until the Anabaptists got back to a more biblical practice and belief? I don't necessarily believe that is true either. There's a book I mentioned at one time on a Bible study I did on a Wednesday evening quite a few years ago. It's called The Pilgrim Church by E.H. Broadbent. And he goes through the history of what he believes are biblical groups, biblical churches. And in a sense could, in a roundabout way, trace a line back to the early church. But it was not a direct, well, this man ordained this man, ordained this man, ordained this man, and you come to a church that exists today. More, he would believe that there were true Christians somewhere in the world at all times since the time of, of Apostle Paul and the churches he started. They didn't necessarily lead from one church to the next. They would pop up in different places, but it seems like God always had a remnant of true believers. Even when the so-called true church, the Catholic church, had apostated and went far away from the truth. I won't go into all those different groups that went from the time of Paul to now. There's not a lot known about a lot of them, but they tended to be small, obviously, and not widely known for obvious reasons. If they had been, they would have been persecuted more heavily than they already were. One of those groups that I'm just going to touch on before we get into the the, uh, Anabaptist beginnings was the Waldenses. They could be found in parts of Europe, uh, France, the Alps of France and Italy. And they went from the time of the 12th century to the 17th century. 17th century is when the Reformation started, so obviously that affected them. And a lot of them were absorbed into other Reformation groups. But there are still supposedly a few that can be found today in Italy. But we don't consider that the Anabaptists came from the Waldenses. If you look into their beliefs, which I did for this study more than I had before, even though they rejected much of the false teachings of the Catholic Church, as far as I could tell, they still did not rebaptize adults. They did not call for the church to be separated from the government, even though they separated themselves from the Catholic Church because they did not recognized the Pope, they did not recognize the cessation of power from one Catholic bishop to the next. They believed, as we do today, that any man could preach if he was a believer. It didn't matter his position or his training. And so there are things that we did agree with them on, but there are also many things that 
we believed as Anabaptists we went back to a more biblical view on things. So why did Anabaptists risk um, possessions, homes, businesses, and even their lives to leave the Catholic Church and be rebaptized? We don't know the hearts and the thoughts of all of them, but the ones that were the leaders, the ones that um, actually had some of their message or ideas put down in writing that have been preserved to today, there were some key points that they disagreed with the Catholic Church. Obviously, one of the bigger ones was the reason they got we they get we got the name of being called Anabaptists or Rebaptizers was the fact that we didn't believe that infant baptism was valid. And so, it may surprise you today how many people would practice that. It has me at times when I've looked into it. Churches that I would feel aren't that far from being biblical in a lot of ways, and yet don't seem to have a problem with infant baptism. Why does that matter? What was important about it? And I don't have time to go into all those. Obviously, um, I'm going to have to make a lot of this short. But a believer, and we can find it in First Peter, First um, Peter chapter three, verse twenty-one, is that we needed an answer. Of good, con- we needed to be able to give an answer with good conscience towards God and man. Well, obviously, infants cannot do that. It is not possible for them to do that. I'm going to read from a short section in um, a booklet booklet that was first printed in 1944. I don't know how many of you have this at home. Have read this? Um, I believe I received this when I was at. Uh, SMBI years ago but I just thought there was a good article or a good section in here in thinking about this why did we as Anabaptists not try to just stay in the Catholic Church and bring revival to that and this is what the, the writer of this pamphlet said it is evident from the statements that Anabaptists were concerned most of all about a true Christian life that is a life patterned after the teaching an example of Christ. The reformers, they believed, whatever their profession may have been, did not secure among the people true repentance. And those reformers would have included like Ulrich Zwingli, um, Martin Luther, and others who talked a good talk. They taught a lot of true things about Scripture, but among their followers... There was not true repentance. Reformers, they believed, whatever the profession may have been, did not secure among the people true repentance, regeneration, and Christian living as a result of their preaching. The Reformation emphasis on faith was good, but inadequate, for without newness of life, they held faith is hypocritical. And I thought it's fascinating today, looking around us at many of the people who would call themselves Christians, probably not attend church every week, but would call themselves Christians, claim to believe in God. There's not that true repentance or regeneration 
like I mentioned in my last message. And so that is what sets us apart. One of the things that set us apart as Anabaptists is that we believe that it shouldn't just be something talked about on Sunday morning, but it should be something that truly changes us and makes us different. As I mentioned, the beginning of the of the Anabaptist church is generally considered to be 1523 to 1525. They believe this home here in Switzerland that I have up on the overhead is the home where the first rebaptisms took place. George Blorock stood up in a meeting they were having and asked to be baptized, and then he in turn baptized others that were there. So why were they willing, as I mentioned earlier, willing to lose their life for this change, this belief? I'm just going to go through some of them, but one of the things that um, I'm going to be looking at are some of the seven points of the Schleiheim Confession done in 1527. And we'll just go into there but why yeah why were they willing to lose everything for this belief but the first one was adult baptism it was the most prominent thing that separated them Uh, many anabaptists lost their lives for that point alone it didn't matter if they believed in everything else that the catholic church did but if they believed that they should be rebaptized that was enough for them to lose their head or to be drowned another point that they felt was important, and if you looked at the churches around them, even within the other, some of the other groups within the Reformation, um, there was a lot of sin allowed to live within the church. And I think we can even see that today in a lot of your mega churches. There can be people that are living a life of sin, and they're not called out for it. There's no real process of excommunication. As long as you show up and go through the right things, say the right things. And yet we know it's important. I'm just going to give the references. You can look these up later if you would like to. But 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 to 3, the whole chapter touches on this idea that we are not to allow sinners living in open sin to remain in the church without some process of either bringing them back into fellowship or excommunication. The next one is communion. Yes, the Catholic Church claimed to do communion, that they had it in a very um, unbiblical manner. Not only did they believe things about the communion that were untrue, but they also allowed sinners and wicked people to take part in that communion. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 20 and 21 touch on that. The next one was separation of the church and the world. And it's something that struggle has continued on through today. We have people around us who, in a lot of ways, believe the same things about God, about Jesus, about our need for salvation, but yet are very involved in trying to affect the government and the world around them. They say, well, we as believers should run for Congress. We should get out there and vote and make a change. But as Anabaptists, we believed that we were not called to do that. We were called to live separate, that our kingdom was of another world. 
And the reference for that one is 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 15. The fifth point was that leaders were to be chosen from godly men and most often from within the congregation. If you look back at the writings of Menno Simons and others, they often would talk about the debauchery that went on within the leaders within the Catholic Church. The bishops, the priests, were often rich. They were involved with ungodly behavior. And the Anabaptists said, this isn't right. The Bible is clear that our leaders are to be called from within the congregation of godly men. They needed to have a good report in the community. They needed to serve, teach, and live the gospel, not just stand in the pulpit. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 to 7, speak on that, and there are other passages also. The sixth point they made was the sword. Only the state was allowed to take up arms. Believers were not to take part in this. The church could use excommunication to punish sin and disobedience, but not the sword. And I had to think about that. I don't want to spend too long on it, but it is something interesting. If you look at it, look back, I've heard people, different people talk about this. But the idea that the gospel should not be spread by the sword was actually a concept that seemed to be largely lost from the 4th century until the Reformation until the Anabaptists once again took that stand and said it should be a free will choice to make a choice choice for Christ, to be a Christian. Most groups, most churches, most nations would pick a religion and then put the sword to your neck and say, you're going to be part of this religion. Even England that today you would say has relative freedom of religion, for numbers of years people would lose their lives Either for a while the nation would be a Catholic nation, and so if you were in England, you had to be a Catholic, and then it would, the king would switch and it would be an Anglican, a Church of England king, and so you'd have to join the Church of England. But it was all done through the sword and through um, threat of life, and yet as Anabaptists, we said, that's not how it should be. That's not how we should bring people to the Lord. And I would say that the missionary, largely the missionary effort of the 18th and 19th centuries seem to have been influenced by the Anabaptist teaching that it should, people should be taught and compelled through teaching and talking through and showing through lives, not by the power of the sword. And even today... How many have heard the phrase separation of church and state? Where do you think that came from? From the Anabaptists. Now, it first appeared in uh, Supreme Court decisions in 1947, which I found really interesting. This pamphlet came out in 1944. With that phrase, separation of church and state, you can find that in here. Three years later, the Supreme Court started using that as a reason to push Christianity out of government institutions. First it would be pushed out of schools, then it would be continued even today. I read an article a few weeks ago of a county board, uh, a county, uh, yeah, just a county government 
had been sued by some national organization that they could no longer pray a Christian prayer at the beginning of their meetings because of supposed separation of church and state. If you dig into it, the Constitution does not say that there should be separation of church and state. It only says that you should not be compelled to have a certain religion, which is very intriguing. Where did the founders of the United States even come up with that? Some would argue that they got it from the Anabaptists, that there had been no nation before us that had actually put in their law that you were not to be compelled for any religion. You could choose whatever religion you wanted. So that idea is today a American supposed patriotic idea, but I believe, if not mistaken, that they probably got it from the Anabaptists. Does that make what they're saying today in many political movements correct? No, because they're forgetting why that, where that teaching comes from. It comes from Christ. It comes from a biblical point that we shouldn't even be involved with politics. The last one I'm going to look at is number seven of the Schleim Confession. Believers were not to take oaths or swear. That can, one of the spots in the Bible that talks about that is Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Today, many Protestant churches have moved closer to Anabaptist positions compared to the Protestant churches of the 16th and 17th centuries. So why can't we just join them? Anybody want to say, anybody brave enough to, why can't we just go join a Protestant church in our community that believes, are there Protestant churches in our community that believe these seven things, all of these seven things? As I look down through this list, adult baptism, I would say there are many churches, Protestant churches today that would agree with us that baptism should be of adults, those who are old enough to understand what they're doing. But how many Protestant churches today practice some form of excommunication, whether they call it that or something else? I would say there are very few. Communion, I believe that most Protestant churches practice it, but for many, it's open communion. And once again, they're back to where the Catholics were of allowing people that are living in sin to take part in it. How many Protestant churches in our community have a biblical view on separation of church and the world? I would say there are very few. Even though Protestant, number five, Protestant churches today maybe don't have the corruption and the leadership that the Catholic Church did in the 16th century, they still are not often taking their leaders from within the congregation. Young men from wherever go off to seminary, and then they go out and look for a job. The sword. How many Protestant churches today believe that believers should not take up weapons and protect themselves? Does anybody know of any church today outside of the conservative Anabaptists that believe that? I don't know of any. I know that I, um, 
I've known, a, I've known a couple of men who were part of the Brethren, Church of the Brethren, in our community, and would not have, they would have had done 1W service or C, 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 CPS during World War II, but many of those churches today no longer believe that we are called to be non-resistant. And today, believers not taking oaths or swearing, using God's name to make promises, there are very, very few churches today. So even if you could find one that stood for all those things, there are things today that even if they stood for those seven things, there are other things today that churches that in the 16th, 17th century would have agreed with us no longer believe that. I'm going to look at those things very quickly here. I'm going to try to go through them very quickly, but Unveiled women, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. How many Protestant churches in our community today practice this, practice this biblically the way that even Protestant churches would have done 100 to 120 years ago? Cross-dressing, women dressing like men and men like women. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 speaks of this. This is coming in more and more in our churches and are no longer able to um, find churches that take a biblical stand. Divorce and remarriage, Mark 10, verses 11 through 12. There's all kinds of excuses and inroads that think ways around the biblical man that if a divorce takes place, that remarriage is not permitted outside the death of that spouse. And yet we see it all over in supposedly biblical, supposedly biblical Protestant churches. Women in the pulpit and men not leading out in the home. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 34 would speak to that, that women are to, to be silent in the church. And yet, um, just saw a video this week by Justin Peters, talking about the Southern Baptist Convention, even though I would have said 10 years ago that in a lot of ways we're not that different from a lot of Southern Baptist churches. Many Southern Baptist churches in the last 10 years have ordained women into the leadership. And the last one is immodesty. Turn with me. I've been flying through these scriptures, and I don't like to do that, but turn with me to 1 Timothy Chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. In like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And I'm going to stop there. So this verse touches on both the women in leadership in the church and also in the home. 
And we as men, I, I know that we didn't all agree Wednesday night. We didn't all agree in our discussion in our Sunday school class this morning. But I, I just want to commend fathers that are passionate about where their families end up. The influences on their family. That they're getting a Christian education and not just sending your children into public school without any thought about what they might be taught. I hope you understood when I said that I did not condemn you if that's what you feel God has led you to do. But I'm saying you're thinking it through, you're teaching your children. Those are things that part of the Anabaptist faith we believe very strongly. This list could go on of things that I've mentioned here that... um, you will see different between us as Anabaptists and many of the Protestant churches around us. So what made them willing, as I mentioned earlier, to give up their lives for their beliefs? There were many that didn't. There were many that just said, you know what, it's not worth it. I'll just, I'll be a Christian in the Catholic Church, I'll be a Christian in the Lutheran Church, whatever church it was, they were not willing to take a stand. So what are we willing to do? Is it possible that Salem could look like one of our local churches? I'm just going to pick on one, I'm not going to pick on any specific, but let's pick the missionary church today. I have co-workers, friends in those churches and even though I can believe, uh, agree with them on a lot of things, when it comes to certain things, I cannot agree with them. Or even worse, I say this worse, understand what I'm saying. We could be in the shape that Goshen College Mennonite or Berkey Avenue Mennonite are in. We could be there. We could be there in 25 years. So what are we doing today to fight for our families and our convictions, for our church to take a stand. The interesting thing is I thought about it, I don't believe that those churches that I mentioned this morning are going to be where they are today in 25, 50 years. And the reason is, is they're following the culture around them. They're following the fads Right now, yes, they're taking a stand a little above the world. Maybe some areas quite a bit above the world, going against that countercultural. But in a lot of ways, they're just following the trends of the world. So if we want to look similar in 50 years from what we are today, it will not be because we're just following the culture. We're going to have to stand. And part of the reason, the blessing of the Anabaptist beliefs that I went through this morning helps us to recognize and clarify some of the differences between us and other people who claim to be Christians that are living around us. Yes, we must still continue to preach the teachings of Jesus and Paul's teaching and not elevate man's ideas above those. Because some churches, we can look around in the Anabaptist faith, Some churches in the last 50 years, to try to not change, have become legalistic 
and just made it all about the rules at the, at the sacrifice of teaching a true changed life through Jesus Christ. So we must not lose sight of that either. But if we want to continue to have an influence on the culture around us, it's not by joining the culture, but it's by willing to stand on our convictions. And, if, and it's possible. It seems hard to believe. Even though many, many Anabaptists lost their lives in the 16th century, they were able to influence the church as a whole, I believe, right up to this day, even though the many, many churches have apostatized, there was still an influence there towards the truth. And we need to still continue to do that today. We still need to fight for the idea of separation of church and state, not in the way that people that are pushing for the freedom from religion are using it today against us, against Christianity, but with the idea that we are called to have another kingdom. What Jesus taught, that there are two kingdoms, and our kingdom is not of this world. So in closing, I want us to ask the question, is Salem worth fighting for? Is our stand worth fighting for our convictions, our Anabaptist beliefs? Are we willing to die for our beliefs and our convictions? No, the rewards on this earth are probably not going to be what we often think of as things maybe worth fighting for in our human thinking. Our reward is going to be in heaven. Do you care if Salem slides towards liberalism and the world? I hope each one of you do. Are you willing to do what it takes to make sure that this generation stands faithful. And I hope our verse, our heart, our cry this morning, for, li- for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, to do what we can, to be faithful until Jesus calls us home. Lord bless each one of you.